Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to your God's Love podcast. This podcast is all about holistic health, sacred sexuality, and spirituality. I have Rena Martin here, and she is a woman, women's intimacy expert. Welcome. Hello. Yes, I'm so excited to have you. We are both on similar missions. So go into how did you get into this work? Ooh, interesting question. So I spent uh, about 14 years as a deputy district attorney with LA County, where I specialized in prosecuting cases of child abuse, sexual assault, and domestic violence. So I have a long history of working with trauma survivors, uh, primarily women and females. And, um, you know, so that's, that's always been a passion of mine. I went through my own work several years back in realizing that I hadn't done my own transformation in terms of rewriting my own narratives and, and living my life shame free. And so I started on this twisting and winding journey of figuring out how I could begin living my most shame free, sexually and emotionally fulfilling intimate life. And um, it took me years of doing the therapy and reading the books and listening to all the podcasts. And so now my work that I do as an educator and um, as a coach in the women's intimacy space is really giving women the opportunity to do in a much shorter period of time what took me years to do, because I don't believe that women need to spend years trying to do this on their own. And so I am here to help women love their body, um, experience deep intimacy, and have great sex shame-free. Mm, I love that. Yeah, because that's such an interesting background because you probably saw, oh, wow, this is what happens if we don't have a healthy form of sexual sexuality and a healthy form of uh, sexual education. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I saw what happens to women's sense of agency and dignity when, when that's taken from them, when they are the victims of sexual assault. But I also saw the resilient capacity that we have as humans and as women to move past this shame and go from victim to survivor and, and really stand in our power. And that's what drives me. The, the fact that we can change is what drives me to help women today. It just looks a little bit different. I'm not in the courtroom anymore. So I'm helping women in a different capacity. Cool. I love that. Yes. Yeah. And then tell me, so what are your thoughts on, cause you did a post on this recently about open relationships. I know this is a huge thing now. What are your thoughts? Well, um, we are really freaking bad at monogamy. And it's actually only um, since, the, since the rise of agriculture, if we're talking about human history, that this idea of monogamy has become prevalent in human society. And this idea of women being the property of men we've found and and you know the new science supports this that um that there was a history of understood non-monogamy within our society as humans and this is all around the world and that this only really changed once um agriculture and what we call plow culture uh, came to be so we are really bad at it um yet we beat ourselves up for not being able to conform to this societal structure that we are inherently really bad at. So that creates this shame cycle for both men and women. And what we're finding 
is that the infidelity gap is closing and that women are committing acts of infidelity. Women are cheating now at pretty much the same rates as men. So in our freedom as women, when we're able to work outside the home a bit more, we have more financial independence, we are able to exercise our sexual autonomy. And given that freedom, what is that telling us? It's telling us that women want to go and stray outside of their relationship just as much as men do, um, perhaps for different reasons. And that's kind of what, what the research supports. But it's just starting a new discussion around this and saying there isn't only one way to do this because people cheat whether they are in or people go outside of the relationship whether they're in a committed monogamous relationship or not so if we can remove some of the confines of monogamy and just start having discussions around this then we can remove some of that shame element because we're no longer doing a bad thing so i talk about ethical non-monogamy and what does that mean that's a huge umbrella that can mean poly that can mean kitchen table poly, which is the, you know, this idea of everyone gets together at a kitchen table together on Sunday night and shares meals. But that isn't the only way to do it. Um, on one end of the spectrum, you've got a couple who decides to experiment together outside of their relationship. Um, and they can do that safely. There needs to be a ton of communication. And then in the middle, you have monogamish, which is a term that Dan Savage coined, which is essentially... We are together, but there are certain situations where it's okay for us to go outside the relationship and it's not going to destroy the relationship. Um, because people think that if there's one instance of infidelity, that that means that you failed at monogamy, but we're not looking at all the years of fidelity there. So it can really be whatever you want it to be, whether that's swinging, whether that's bringing in a third, if you're in a committed partnership, whether that is being poly, whether that is monogamish, like if you're on a business trip, don't ask, don't tell, do what you want, use protection, I don't want to know about it. There's so many different ways you can do this. And it's just, I mean, the sky's the limit, but you got to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's so, I think this is liberating and exciting. Like I follow a lot of poly coaches you know, on Instagram. And I think that this one woman, I don't know if you've heard of her, her name is, uh, her account is Progressive Love Academy, but she is the kitchen table of uh, Polly, which is interesting you rephrase it that way, but that's her. Like it'll be everybody at the table just kind of chilling. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's such an interesting, uh, you know, it's so open and free instead of what most people are doing where they're just, a lot of people are just cheating or they're saying, oh, I'm bad at monogamy, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think what turns a lot of people off from poly or from open relationships in general is because they think, well, I could never do kitchen table poly. Therefore, I'm not cut out for ethical non-monogamy. And so I really just want to stress that that is only one way of doing it. And within poly communities, um, from what I've seen, they tend to have a lot of rules. I personally don't love a lot of rules. Um, I want autonomy to explore in a way that is respectful of my partner, but where my partner isn't micromanaging my relationships outside of the relationship. And so that is what has never appealed to me when it comes to kitchen table poly, because essentially 
you're having to report back to your partner every single thing you're doing with somebody else outside of the relationship. And so it, it really robs you of some of this sense of autonomy. And that is me personally, um, but I can see how and why it works for other people. But I'm just here to say as somebody who is a huge proponent of ethical non-monogamy, that just because poly doesn't resonate with you, it doesn't mean that you're going to be bad at it. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point because I feel the same way. I hate rules, literally. <laughs> um, so I think you're right. That is a really good point for people listening. It's such an individual. So when you're working with a woman, have you worked with women that are like having this kind of problem and, the, and then they go, oh, I think I want to be like some sort of, some form of maybe uh, like open? Yeah, absolutely. I actually worked with a woman who came to me because there had been infidelity in her marriage um, on, on her part. And um, she was wondering whether that meant that she wanted an open marriage or if it's just that things had become stale with her partner. So over the course of our work together, things became unstale with her partner. And she was able to, you know, they, they started having really great sex, better communication, all the things that she would want in that marriage. And so as we wrapped up our time together, I was like, okay, so you, you got what you wanted within the marriage. Do you still think you want to go outside the marriage? And she was like, yeah, I think I do. And so that was, you know, our work became the answer that she needed to know that this is in fact her orientation because people can sign up. They can either sign up for consensual or ethical non-monogamy, or that's just who they are to their core. So much like being bisexual, or homosexual, some people just, that's how they identify. They are not wired for conventional monogamy. And through our work, she found out that she just happens to be one of those people. And that's totally fine. Whereas some couples will say, hey, you know, we've been together for a while or we just want some adventure. And they agree to do this and they may not necessarily identify as that to their core. So there is a little bit of a distinction there as far as this being a self-identified label or something that you were doing as an action. Um, and, and yeah, so with her, this was um, something that she came to realize was just part of her identity. But on the other hand, I've worked with women who had identified as poly for a long time. And because of where they live in really progressive cities, like that's kind of the default if you're within an age bracket and you're seen as being liberal and progressive minded if you're part of a poly community, but then they realize, you know, I don't think this actually aligns with what I want. And they realize that in their core, what they truly want is monogamy. So, so I think that, that it, it swings, the pendulum swings both ways there, as far as people thinking that they need to fit within this box, whether that's the monogamous box or the poly box, but understanding that there is no box, like there doesn't have to be one. And if there is one, you can make it look however the hell you want it to look. And, and that's, that's what I help women do is figure out like, what do you want that life to look like for you? Mm, I love that. Yeah. Cause I, I talk about that a lot too, with like living an orgasmic life is authentic to you. So you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause it's almost like we have so much shame in this one area of life that people feel like very restrained. Yeah. And isn't that interesting because it's the one, one of life's greatest joys that is absolutely free. And it's a way that we can play as adults. I mean, we forget how to play, right? We get so bogged down with all of our responsibilities 
that we forget how to play. And it, 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 it's, it's a way to play. It's a way to feel at home in your body. It's a way to have fun. And, and we've forgotten that, that sex is meant to be fun and it gets shrouded in so many other things. And, um, and it's a shame. It really is a shame. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Okay. So would your advice be for people listening maybe to kind of like, cause you made a good point about, I've never even thought about that where the people being, Oh, based off where they live, everybody's polling. Then they, then they realize, Oh, that's not me. Like that's such a good point. So for the people listening really just to figure out individually what works for you. Yeah. I mean, no one else is going to make the decision for you or they'll try. Right. But then you end up feeling that you aren't living in your integrity and there's, there's the shame component. So figuring out, you know, if I could design an ideal arrangement with a partner, what would that look like? And, and don't put yourself in the space of how would I feel if they did it, but what kind of freedom would you like? Would you want the kind of freedom that's okay? If I'm out of town on a business trip, and something happens, or if I'm, you know, traveling for extended periods of time, or if I, you know, randomly make out with someone at a bar, like, what do you want? Or do you want to have a threesome with your partner? Do you want to have a separate relationship outside of your relationship? So if we could wave the magic wand, what would you want? And I think that's the starting point. And then from there, it's considering, okay, well, how would I feel if my partner use that same freedom and figuring out then what the rules are around how you're going to communicate that to one another. Because there is, again, this idea that in order to be good at ethical non-monogamy, that you have to disclose everything to the other person. And there, but there's another way of doing it. You can have a don't ask, don't tell policy within your relationship with certain parameters around it. And so far as safety goes, but, um, and that, that's really shunned upon within the poly community. So, so within ethical non-monogamy, there's still shaming going on by different sectors, which I don't like, but, but, you know, you figure out what works for you. Some people want to communicate that way. And some people are like, no, I trust you. You don't need to tell me everything that you did, but it's all up to you. Mm. I love that. I love how you keep saying that though, because that is so true. It's like, it is seeped. Because when I started doing this work a few years ago, I came from health coaching and went into this um, because I was having trouble having orgasm. And mm-hmm. it made me realize that I didn't know what I liked sexually because I didn't even, I just wanted one orgasm, <laughs> you know, just give me that. And then I'll figure out like what I desire, you know? <laughs> Well, and that's what I see time and time again. And so, you know, within my program, so I have an eight week program, it's called Shameless, but part of the program is really giving women the space to ask themselves the questions that they've never asked before. And once you get to the answers, you then know how to effectively communicate your wants, needs, and desires instead of relying on your partner to set the stage for you and just accept whatever's on offer really understanding that, you know, the research shows that, that men, and I, so I'm sorry to be like kind of heteronormative about this, but we're talking about men and women, assuming that we're talking about male, female relationship, mm-hmm. um, men, the research shows that a huge component of their sexual satisfaction 
is bringing pleasure to their partner. So it's a win-win for everyone. You communicating what you like, they're able to give it to you. That increases their sexual satisfaction. And then you get what you want too. So it does, you know, all the work, but here's the problem is that people don't know how to have these conversations outside of the bedroom or they're scared to have them. So one thing I suggest is instead of saying, okay, here's my laundry list of everything I want. Here are my demands, right? Here's my ransom note. Here are all my demands. Having the conversation of like, you know, how do you like to be touched? Um, What turns you on the most? And let them answer first. And I guarantee you, once they've answered, they'll say, okay, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's my answer. What turns you on the most? We're asking, how important is orgasm to you? What's your favorite way to orgasm? What are your views on monogamy? Um, What are your views on kink? Um, What are your views on restraints? I mean, what are your views on the sky's the limit? But that's how we start having these conversations outside of the bedroom because they found that for women, um, for those who actually talk about sex outside of the bedroom, 50% of them say that they are satisfied in their relationships. For those who don't talk about sex outside of the bedroom, 9%. I mean, it's kind of the simplest hack you can use to just improve your relationship is having these conversations. Oh, wow. That's a big difference. Yeah, that is such a good point. And you're right. That is so interesting. I don't know if you saw the same study that I saw, but it said um, 40% of American couples are sexless, which means they only have sex once a month or less. Did you hear or research anything like that? No, I'm not familiar with that study. I mean, the number doesn't entirely surprise me. Um, and that's super, it's, it's really unfortunate because what the current science has found is that male and female sex drive is actually exactly the same. We want sex just as much as men do, mm-hmm. um, which is, I mean, for a lot of people kind of mind blowing because it goes against everything we've been taught about male and female sexuality, but that's a lot of unmet needs there. A yeah. lot of sexual frustration. Mm, I know. Oh my gosh. I, seriously. Well, um, I, I think the study is probably true because I, I had a few men reach out to me that are in that situation mm-hmm. and it goes back is why I bring this up is it goes back to what you're exactly saying with the fact that maybe one partner really wants to work on it. The other one's like, Mm-hmm. And so what have you seen in, in the work that you've done, whether, because I, I work strictly with women, I don't work with mm-hmm. couples. And so how have you seen that couples are successful in bridging that gap? Mm, it, it, only if both parties want to do it. Because to be honest with you, a lot of those, those situations, um, if they're really conservative, they're religious, it, it doesn't go, it doesn't work. They don't, they just continue the way they're going. Yeah. Yeah. We just said. Well, and we have this, we have this understanding like that you fall in love, you get together and then of course you live happily ever after, but, but that you don't have to do any more work. And it's, you know, you take the car off the lot, the car is brand new, it's been detailed, it's shiny, but you still have to get freaking car washes. You still have to get oil changes. Like your check engine light goes off and you need to go take care of it. Yet what I see time and time again is that sex gets added to the very bottom of the list 
insofar as relationship priorities goes. And it's no wonder. So if the sex is bad, it's, um, well, well, what is it? If the sex is good, it's 10% of the relationship, but if it's bad, it's 90% of it. Like, that's the thing, right? This is your check engine light. You're looking for a sign. You're looking for a litmus test of how the whole relationship is doing. Look in the bedroom. And that's where, where you can, where you can see that that's your test. That's your result right there. Mm, I so agree with you. Cause I remember I dated someone and the whole time we were together, I couldn't have an orgasm. Now I look back and I think I just wasn't attracted to him. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Cause the guy right after him, I had multiple orgasms. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, so much of our ability to orgasm is, is tied to our state, to the context, you know, our accelerators, our brakes, all those good things. So that makes complete sense. But sometimes we convince ourselves like, oh, he's a good guy. Mm, yes. And that's what I did. I'm not even kidding you. Like everybody was like, oh, like he did check all the boxes. Great Southern guy, you know, had a great job. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like if that piece is a big piece, if it's not going well. Well, that's the thing that separates friends from lovers, right? Very true. Yeah. I mean, I'm not looking for a friend. I've got a lot of guy friends. <laughs> right, right. And so they say, well, is sex really that important? It's like, well, why are you in a relationship to begin with then? Why not just have a, a friend? Very true. Yeah. It's so weird. But I think it all goes back to the fact that like none of us were really educated with the fact that like women have all these different types of orgasms and there's limitless pleasure that we can experience. Oh, absolutely. Or, you know, women don't know how to do it or they're depending on their own orgasmic education to come from their partner. And, and so there's so much there. And, and I found now having, you know, worked with so many women that every single one is unique in the way she likes to be touched, in the way she experiences self-pleasure in her preferred mode of orgasm. I mean, we're all unique. And so it puts men in this kind of unfair position because we're expecting them to have this crystal ball where, you know, well, don't you know what women like? Well, they might know what the last woman liked, but I'm here to tell you because, you know, I, I get the nitty gritty details from, from the dozens of women who've been through my program and, and seen side by side. And I can tell you, no, no woman is alike. Every woman is unique, and that's why you got to ask. And women, you got to be able to use your words and have these conversations. Mm. Wow. Yeah, you make such a good point. I think it's, it's really all goes back to taking personal responsibility and not blaming the guy. You're right, because that's so much pressure. And I've done several posts on this, and I've, and they've spoken out about this, because that is a lot for guys. And I think that it's... It's like no one wants that much pressure, <laughs> you know? It no, makes it not fun. It makes it not fun. And I, women are under a tremendous amount of pressure too. And so I don't want to, to trivialize that because we are under pressure to perform, which is why so many women are freaking faking orgasms oh. out there. Yes, I've opposed on that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we're faking it as a substitute for using our words. We're faking it instead of saying like, you know, this isn't doing it for me um, or I'm done or, you know, like we have this trump card that we're playing as a substitute for just using our words and talking about it. Um, and, you know, 
if you are a woman who doesn't reach orgasm every time or has difficulty reaching orgasm, and it's not all that important to you, because again, I don't think that reaching orgasm should be the measure of whether this was a quote unquote successful uh, round of, of sex in the bedroom. Um, but there are women who don't orgasm as often who are okay with that. And just telling your partner, like, just so you know, if I don't orgasm, it has nothing to do with you. And it doesn't mean I didn't like this. And otherwise, you know, there's this shame of him feeling like he hasn't lived up to what he quote unquote should be doing and isn't bringing you pleasure. So just talk about it. Yeah, no, no, that is such a good point. Because I remember the very, I've only faked it once. Uh huh. But I literally remember afterwards being like, damn, you, that was like, it, it was a lot of like resentment, you know? So I think that it's, it's not a good feeling, but the fact that we all joke about that, you're right. Both parties are performing and then going into segueing into the orgasm gap. I, I sometimes I feel like, why is this still even a thing? Is this a thing because of lack of communication? Like it's crazy how the orgasm gap still exists in 2021 when we're all into this female empowerment, you know, movement. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think part of it um, also just comes from a general misunderstanding about female anatomy and genital anatomy and this perpetuated myth that most women um, orgasm reliably through just vaginal penetration, which is bullshit. Like that is not how we orgasm. Um, 95%, it could be 99%. It's between 95 and 99% of women who masturbate do so without any vaginal penetration whatsoever. So what is that telling you? And yet we have these men um, who think that if the that there's something wrong with the woman if she can't orgasm through just vaginal penetration and faking orgasms is perpetuating this myth because men will be like, well, you know, you're the first woman I've met who can't come that way. And it's like, uh, you've been with a lot of women who are faking orgasms then, or you should go buy a lotto ticket. Right. Um, so, so faking doesn't, it, it does a huge disservice to everyone involved. And, and it does a disservice to, to women at large, because if we're honest about, no, like this is not how I get off. This is, this is not what I need. Then we can start to change the dialogue. And so that our partners understand how we're built and what we like and what's going to bring us to orgasm. And they won't keep trying to stick this. <laughs> wow. I didn't think that analogy through. I was going to say they won't try to stick this square peg into a round hole, but you get my picture. You get my picture. Yeah, totally. And I think that, um, like I always say, and I'm sure you agree with me on this, like the more women are experiencing pleasure sexually, the less antidepressants we need. <laughs> like the better the world would be. The world would be this happier place. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I just, I ran a group last week on um, stress, anxiety, and orgasm. And orgasm is so magical because it releases oxytocin, um, which decreases our cortisol levels. It encourages our body's natural production of melatonin. Um, it increases vasopressin. I mean, like it's kind of like a supplement, but it's a supplement that feels really good. So even if you are single, take care of yourself, ladies, 
because this is going to help your skin. It's going to help your sleep. It's going to help your stress levels. And it's kind of like nature's Advil. So if you're having a lot of period cramps, if you suffer from migraines, they found that masturbation and orgasm is a great way to just soothe pain in your body. So it's all the mm. good things. Yes, I love that. Yeah, because I used to be, I think one of the problems for me with why I wasn't having an orgasm was being on antidepressant. Mm. And I talked to a woman about this two weeks ago, and she said, man, now it takes me even longer to have an orgasm. You know, oh, because she's on medication. And that is real. Like that is a mm -hmm. real link yeah. um, for sure. And it's something to consult with your healthcare provider about. Cause I, I mean, I know that it's, it's hard to find the right meds and it's kind of trial and error. And when you find <laughs> yeah. one that works, you know, up here in the brain and then only to find out like it's shut off your operations downstairs. It's a huge bummer, but, but yeah. that is, that is a real thing. Mm, totally. Yes, definitely. And then what would you want, like what final takeaway would you want to leave everybody with? Ooh, woman. Oh, there's so many. Um, final takeaway is just, just asking yourself, like, what would my life look like if shame were an option? What would my life look like if fear were an option? How would I be living differently? And that's what, that's what I have my own clients do because that's where we start. That's where we start to imagine. And from there, we can create that. And, you know, I, I want the level of complete satisfaction, the level and depth of intimacy I have in my own life, the great sex I'm having that took me years to get to. I want this for everyone. And so start there. Like, if you could do anything, what would your life look like? Mm, wow. I love this. Okay. Well, I will place your links below. Thank you so much. This is such a great conversation. Y'all be sure to like, share, subscribe to the podcast. Now we'll see you next week. Bye.